Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg læste for nogle år siden en bog af en amerikansk-britisk tænker ved navn Daniel Allen, der hed Talking to Strangers. Det er faktisk ikke for meget sagt at sige, at det var en bog, der ændrede mit liv. Pointen i Daniel Allens bog Talking to Strangers er, at hele demokratiet starter med, at vi opbygger fællesskaber omkring os. At vi overalt, hvor vi er og går og taler og køber ind, handler og arbejder, at vi der bygger små forbindelser til alle menneskene omkring os, og det handler om at tale med fremmede. Hver eneste gang, man har muligheden for det, der hvor vi er tilbøjelige til at kigge væk, eller kigge ned, eller kigge på vores telefoner, eller lytte til noget musik, så i stedet for at række ud til dem, vi står overfor, og indlede samtaler med dem. Jeg læste bogen, og synes egentlig, det var sådan en fantastisk ting, at man kunne modgå det, som de frygtomme kalder for polarisering, og som vi andre kalder for kæmpe store klassekonflikter i vores samfund, og som vi også kan se er den offentlige samtales totale sammenbrud i mange store demokratier, at man kunne imødegå det, hvis vi alle sammen simpelthen talte med fremmede over alt, hvor vi kom. Det fik jeg ud af Daniel Allens bog, Talking to Strangers. Så læste jeg nogle flere bøger af hende. Hun har også skrevet en helt fantastisk bog, der hedder Cos, The Life and Times of Michael A. Det er en fuldstændig anderledes type bog. Det er en bog, der handler om hendes fætter, Michael Allen, hvordan han blev involveret i meget hård bandekriminalitet, narkokriminalitet ude i Kalifornien, hvor hun selv er født og, og vokset op, og hvordan han blev fængslet, og hvordan hans involvering i forskellige bandekampe endte med, at han selv blev skudt. Hun tog over og fortalte Michael Allens historie og lavede det om til bogen Kost, og det er faktisk ligesom at læse The Wire eller en af de store amerikanske tv-serier som fortællinger. Så hun også skrevet en bog, der hedder Why Plato Wrote, som handler om Platon, som handler om, hvorfor det ikke var nok for Platon at gøre som Sokrates, der som bekendt gik rundt og talte med folk i Bolis. Han talte virkelig med fremmede, men hvorfor det også var nødvendigt at skrive det hele ned efterfølgende, sådan så det blev blivende og fik en plads imellem os. Hun har skrevet en bog, der hedder Our Declaration, som er en genlæsning af den amerikanske uafhængighedserklæring. Og i den læsning, der understreger Daniel Allen, at lighed hele tiden har været lige så vigtigt som frihed for amerikanerne. At det først er i anden halvdel af det 20. århundrede, at man adskiller frihed fra lighed. Og siger, at frihed det er til at realisere sig selv, og det er til at lave karriere, det er til at blive rig, og ingen må stå i vejen for mig. Fra starten var frihed tænkt som lighed i frihed. Frihed betyder, at ingen bestemmer over dig. Ingen er dig overordnet. Du er ikke nogens slave. Du er ikke underkuget i nogen relationer. Det er der, friheden starter, og det betyder, at frihed starter med lighed. Det argument fører Daniel Allen igennem i nærlæsning af uafhængighedserklæringen til et nyt politisk program for en social lighed som omdrejningspunktet for hele det amerikanske demokrati. Hun har været ekstremt engageret i den amerikanske covid-bekæmpelse, har været engageret i forskellige komiteer og lokalarbejde med at få stablet det amerikanske lokaldemokrati på benene. Hun skrev sammen med andre forskere sidste år i 2021 en nytænkning af det amerikanske demokrati, et manifest, der hed Our Common Purpose. Og så har hun fornyeligt lavet en ny bog, der hedder Democracy in the Time of Coronavirus. Hun stillede op til guvernørvalget i Massachusetts, Derfor har hun ført kampagne i halvandet år og har på den måde udforsket det amerikanske demokrati som politiker. Nu er hun så droppet ud, fordi hun havde for få stemmer og for få penge til at fuldføre kampagnen. 
Men det betyder også, at hun har fået nogle andre erfaringer med det amerikanske demokrati. Og den der måde, Daniel Allen, hun blander sin daglige praksis med politik, med at tale med fremmed, med Platon, med Sokrates, med Hannah Arendt, med genlæsning, alle de originale tænkere, den er for mig forbilledelig for en måde at være intellektuel på. Og hendes nysgerrighed over for alle former for demokrati, gør han også til en ekstremt generøs forsker og forfatter, der åbner alle de dele af vores offentlige liv, som vi ellers er tilbøjelige til at se som i forfald og til at se som lukket. Good afternoon and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially hello to you, Professor Daniel Allen, who's with us from Massachusetts. Hello, Runa. Great to be with you today. Thank you so much for having me. Derfor er det en kæmpe fornøjelse for mig, at jeg her om sider kan præsentere en samtale, som jeg har arbejdet to år på at få i stand med Daniel Allen fra Harvard University. You know, I think at the way I read it, at the core of your work, there is an almost love of democracy that goes beyond politicians using democracy as a slogan. And now they're saying it's democracy against autocracy in Ukraine. And it's the opposite of, of tyranny. It seems to me that as a way of living together and as a way of taking part of your local community, but also as a way of governing entire societies, that you really have a deep appreciation for democracy. What, what is it about democracy that you so deeply appreciate? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And, you know, I, and I'm not shy to use the word love. I do genuinely love democracy. Um, so I've got my dog in the background. If you hear a little extra noise, I'm sorry about that. Um, I do love democracy. And it, it's in some sense, I think it's pretty simple. I think it's about the experience of growing up as an African-American in a country that even has a deeply imperfect democracy. I think of the words of the early 20th century sociologist and political philosopher W.E.B. Du Bois. He wrote, of course, you know, well, what will save us from a second slavery other than the ballot box? And at the end of the day, that's really at the core. Democracy does put power in the hands of ordinary people. No matter how bad things are, there is something you can do about it. You can work to change. You can build coalitions and build power to try to drive a transition. That's what I love about democracy. There is something that you can do even in bad circumstances. But you know, there was also, and, and I should say that you're a, a student of political philosophy, but I think you also wrote a PhD about uh, antiquity and history, history, history. So Plato and Aristotle are quite important in, in your work. So of course, yeah. you're familiar with the old critique of democracy, which is as old as democracy, that it's the rule of the many and the many are not as brilliant as the few and that we yeah. should be governed by the philosophers. And At the moment, you hear that a lot. People are not saying we're against democracy, but they they complain about the stupidity of democracy and the stupidity of of citizens and the stupidity of the electorate. And sometimes, if we look at who who are who are governing us, uh, I, I think you see where the criticism comes from. How do you respond to that? Yeah, no, I have to, but I just think Plato is wrong here <laughs> fundamentally. So I am a big believer in the capacities of ordinary people to process the world and make judgments. But even beyond that, I think it's really important to say that for any big hard problem we're tackling, we can't understand the whole of it unless we really have brought in perspectives from all different corners of society. I'll just give you one really concrete example. In COVID, you know, in sort of COVID policy, 
we really wrestled with how to deal with COVID in schools um, in America. And the truth of the matter is one of our big problems was we weren't really talking to people on the ground. There was a big movement, of course, to get schools open for safe and healthy learning. That meant really focusing on airflow, but we really needed to hear from the teacher who could report, you know, in my classroom, the windows are nailed shut. I can't <laughs> open the windows in my classroom. There was no way to know that without actually bringing in the knowledge from positions and experiences from the whole of society. So that's what it comes down to for me. You know, if you think you only need one wise person, you're going to by definition really narrow the knowledge that's brought into the process of decision making. We really need what everybody has to offer from all of our different corners of society. Among young people here, I very who and, and by young people, I mean a lot younger than me, <laughs> people who, who are in their early 20s or teenagers like my kids, they say, well, that democracy is too slow. It's always about negotiating, negotiating. And you see climate change is happening so fast. Yeah. And I tell you, if you look at the last 10 years, I feel that we're winning. And they're responding, yes, we're winning so slowly that it's a sure way of, of, of losing. And yeah. I think, I'm not saying this against democracy, but I think they do hit a real problem here that, that we need time to, to negotiate and we need time to get everybody involved and we need collective intelligence working for us so we don't have the capacity for resolute decisions here. And you know, the Chinese are saying, well, you know, we'll have the same climate strategy for the next 20 years. What about America? How should I respond to my kids? Well, democracy is still the best form of governing, also confronted with the climate change crisis. For sure. No, I appreciate that. Your kids sound a lot like young people here in the U.S. as well. There's no question but that our political institutions have failed to deliver around climate change. That is producing a lot of frustration, for sure, for people in their 20s. And I totally get that. I agree. I mean, I feel the same way. For me, there are really two points at issue. The first is I think we do have to acknowledge that our democracies are not all governing as effectively as they might be. We have a lot of work to do on democracy reform here in the US just to get the gears turning again so that we can actually have effective decision-making. So I think we have to concede the point that we've got to renovate our democracy basically so that it can actually deliver for these hard issues. But the other thing I would say is that for me, it's really, really important that as we do the work of building a healthy climate, a healthy world for us all to live in, um, that it's also a world that we can live in without honestly being slaves, without being the slaves of a political system or otherwise subject to tyranny. So in that regard, for me, we have to find a path to simultaneously a sustainable climate and sustainable democracy. These things have to be pulled together as a joint project. In, in your new book, uh, Democracy in the Time of Coronavirus, which is a very, very good book. And I should say it's about the pre-vaccine period. It's not about the entire uh, right. Corona episode in, in, in America. You say something that I think will be very interesting to Danish listeners and readers that the crisis in democracy in America is not just about Donald Trump or just about Nancy Pelosi, that the coronavirus also revealed some civic weaknesses in, in American society. W what are these uh, civic weaknesses? Well, you know, I think... In the last 50 years, we've gone through a huge transformation in the U.S. I grew up in the 70s in Southern California, 
part of a big family, all kind of lower middle class folks were working hard to try to get ahead. And over the course of the 50 years of my lifetime, our family has really been stretched to sort of outer ends of sort of social experience. My brother and I have had great educational opportunities and professional opportunities. I've lost cousins to our system of mass incarceration, to gun violence, to substance use and opioid use. And basically, as our family has felt this pulling apart, the country has too. We've had this huge increase in income and wealth inequality. It's the period of the incredible rise of mass incarceration. I just literally think of the last 50 years in the US as the great pulling apart. And that great pulling apart is also about the erosion of solidarity. The fact that we, you know, in our neoliberal world of the 80s and 90s really sort of lost a conviction that there are things that we could do together, that we're better off together, that we can work together. And when the pandemic hit, you just saw that in spades, people working hard to protect their own, you know, the our professional athletic associations building bubbles yeah. of protection around athletes, <laughs> colleges and universities building bubbles of protection, and then working people just left exposed to the ravages of the disease. It was just the most profound tragedy. I remember that it came just by the end of the primaries and it was just after Bernie Sanders pulled out and he's a big hero here, Bernie Sanders, <laughs> that that we felt that what what has been like his thesis about American democracy was kind of revealed by the pandemic. So at the time we felt, well, this is shameful for America. I mean, we admire America in a lot of ways. And Joe Biden came and had some progressive uh, had a progressive agenda and some promises. And I even spoke to another philosopher from Cambridge, Massachusetts, actually who said, well, he could be the new FDR. Do you see American responding to, to what was revealed by the pandemic? You know, I see Americans, ordinary people responding to what was revealed by the pandemic. And let me just give you some really concrete examples. So here in Massachusetts, when it came time to deliver vaccines, our state government, in all honesty, uh, didn't bring as much competence to that as you might expect. And vaccines weren't getting into people's arms and particularly um, elder people with mobility issues and uh, low income people and people of color. And we saw civil society organizations come together. A network of civic leaders in Boston formed the Black Boston COVID Coalition, for example. And they used get out the vote techniques and they set up vaccine clinics in neighborhoods very proximate to people. And they got people to those vaccines. And similarly, in the rural part of our state in Western Massachusetts, Berkshire County, the Berkshire County COVID Collaborative did the same kind of work and basically got done the things our state government wasn't able to do. So the truth of the matter is, I believe the American people have seen our challenges and the American people, we know we are people of ingenuity and incredible resources and we are finding solutions to our challenges. Right now, there's a disconnect, I believe, between where we are as a people and what our government, our political institutions um, are delivering for us. Yeah, because that is another point in the book that you have well-functioning local communities mm -hmm. and you have also local governments that are well-functioning. And when we look at America's institutions, we very much look at the federal institutions here from right. Denmark. That that, yeah. that, that is. So, so there's also a disconnect between local institutions and national institutions. Mm -hmm. And how, how do you explain this, this crisis of the national institutions? I know this is a huge question. Right. No, I appreciate that. I mean, it's it's funny because you sort of, you know, if I, I just spent, you know, 15 months on the campaign trail in Massachusetts and I keep saying to people it was a very expensive but very effective form of therapy. I feel much better, honestly, about where we are now than I did 
when I started, that's really because of all the people I encountered and the good work that I could see happening just the way I was describing. And so then there's this kind of puzzle. How can we be a people that has a sound moral compass, can see solutions to our problems, and yet our national politics is so different? The short answer there is it's about how institutions and culture interact with each other. Culture doesn't just sort of translate straight into institutions. Our institutions set up incentive structures that can elicit different kinds of behavior. And the fact of the matter is that the way we run our national elections, it's possible for people to be able, you know, get the nomination for their party with just a sliver, a tiny sliver of the electorate, okay? Um, because we have a plurality voting mechanism. People can literally win 20% of the vote end up as the party nominee and then end up in office. So I believe we have to change our electoral systems so that we are requiring people to win 50% of the vote. So using runoffs, instant runoffs basically to get to that point. Um, I think we need that in order to get back to a place where our political institutions are actually channeling the will of the people and really giving voice to the sort of moral compass that is visible um, on the ground. And I think looking at America from a distance, I, I lived in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania when, okay. when, when I was young, but that's many years ago. I think we always admired in the lines of Alexis de Tocqueville, the, the, the vibrant energy of civil society in America. Mm -hmm. And we always admired how people would make things work and find out things. And I always thought that it was a drama, whether that was alter government or whether that would abolish government, whether that would strengthen government or whether that would weaken government. And at the time, I have the feeling from abroad that much of the energy that you see around political organizations, movements, that should actually alter government and strengthen government, they're abolishing government or weakening government. Do you see that as well? Well, I think you've put your finger on the right question. I mean, I think our civil society is full of innovation and energy and problem solving for sure. And yes, the question is, how does that connect to political institutions? Abraham Lincoln used to use the metaphor of mystic chords, sort of mystic chords connecting all of us. And I think some of those musical metaphors are really helpful. You want to get to a place where you've got sympathetic vibrations, right, between the good work happening at the local level and in those political institutions. We don't have that right now. So the question for me is, how can we get back to a place where we have that kind of sympathetic connection between the good work and what our political institutions are doing. So I think it really is about democracy reform. It really is about changes to our institutions and our institutional mechanisms. Um, but I, I do think that we have a lot of capacity and potential in that civil society energy. Do you also, because you write in your book that it's not just about getting the facts wrong, that it's not about, it's not You say it's it's posing the question wrongly to say, well, is this about getting the facts wrong and, and fake news and, and, and all this? And it appears to me that what you lack in America is a common discourse where everybody is involved that, that you need. And we still have that here in most European countries. And I believe it's because we have national broadcasting system, basically, yeah. like they have even Great Britain, they have huge polarizations, but they have the BBC. Right. And do you, do you believe that you're in America capable of having a national conversations where you meet people with opposite views with the infrastructure you have when it comes to media at the moment? Yeah, no, we, we definitely have real challenges around media for sure. And, um, you know, 
facts do matter. Misinformation is a huge issue. I don't want to say otherwise. Um, but to your point, you're right. I mean, we have very different communities of conversation. And so when I say facts aren't the only thing that matter, what I'm trying to point out is the question of which facts are relevant to yeah. people depend, you know, on what issues are salient for you. And sometimes we can get off in very different directions because we have different views about what's salient. So that really speaks to your question, the issue you're raising about what would it take for us to really build and sustain a national conversation. And I'll tell you, I, you're going you're gonna to laugh because I'm just going to be repeating myself ultimately. But the fact of the matter is Congress, okay, Congress was designed to provide that. That yeah. was its job. <laughs> and Congress is a long way from actually doing that job. But if Congress were working and if, you know, all even of our fragmented universe was reporting on Congress, we would have that national conversation. So the real question is, why is Congress not achieving that for us right now? That does bring me back to those electoral mechanisms where people can win with real slivers of the electorate behind them. And those slivers are more extreme slivers. I do think that is fundamentally what's driving even our problem with narrative and discourse. You, you wrote one book that was very influential for me personally, Talking to Strangers, which is, which is both about philosophy, but also about the daily practice of actually exercising, talking to people that you disagree with. And my wife and I, we decided after that book that we would, you know, every time we met someone at the bus stop where we would talk to actual strangers, you know, <laughs> not just people that I met. Yeah, no, that we would try to exercise that. And then when I look at the American media, and I, I'm glad I, I, I didn't live as a broadcaster in America after Trump. I don't see a lot of, I don't see the virtue of trying to really understand those who think otherwise than me. I don't see a lot of real curiosity among liberals to really get into the mind of conservatives. I see a lot of ways of saying, well, they're bigoted, they're racist, they're this and they're that. That is, it might be true, but it's not just the way of engaging. Do you also feel that people could be better at talking to strangers in, in what could be called your own camp or the liberals or the Democrats? Well, you know, I think we have some really interesting success cases where people do do the work of talking to strangers. And it does show a different result for our country and for our politics. And what I'm thinking about here is if we look away from national politics and we look to state politics, um, in our states, we sometimes have referenda on specific policy questions. So not just voting for people, but hmm. voting for the actual policy to introduce. The amazing thing about this is that we achieve outcomes with supermajority votes. So when more than 65% of the people are all voting for the position, and that means Republicans as well as Democrats are voting for it. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Mississippi um, it had a, in the last election had a referendum on approving a new state flag to get rid of the old emblems of the Confederacy, the, the <laughs> South and the segregationists, and to replace those with new forward-facing symbols. More than 70% of people voted for that. It was the hard work of an organization that has been working to build bridges and talk across those lines of difference. Same thing in Florida. In Florida, a supermajority 
voted to restore voting rights to people who have completed their felony convictions. And they had to form a coalition linking Republicans and Democrats in order to get that done. So on the ground, again, I mean, it's really sort of this distinction between the work that's happening on the ground and then what we see in our kind of national media discourse. You know, on the ground, people want to solve problems in people's lives, and that keeps them connected to that bridge building work. I think our national discourse is just sort of too much about like doing the other guy in right now, and it's not connected enough to on the ground problem solving. And I think that resonates with how we as Danes, when we come to America, we always meet people that are extremely hospitable mm-hmm. uh, compared to us here in Scandinavia. And then we find out, oh my God, they voted for Trump, but they were really nice people when we met them in, in the airport. What do you think, apart from what you saw on the civic level, are, are some of the lessons that America should draw from from the pandemic experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think um, again that it's time for us to do work of democracy renovation. That you know we didn't deliver for ourselves the way we should expect to deliver for ourselves, and the way I believe we have the capacity to deliver for ourselves. And so, you know, we have all these hard issues we're facing, climate. For example, we have a housing crisis in many states in the country. Um, we have ongoing public health challenges and the like. And in order to do a better job of delivering for all of these issues that are real pain points in people's lives, we've got to get back to sort of effective governance. You know, get gears turning again, connect those civil society energies that are so productive to political institutions that can channel them effectively. So. I always talk about the need for responsive and resilient <laughs> representation. That's really my focus. And I feel like, you know, what are the things we have to do for institutions so that we can get back to having responsive and resilient representation? As someone who studied a lot of political philosophy and also some of the thinkers that you studied were very influential politically. So you've kind of studied also the intersection between right. ideas and, and politics. And I love the part of our declaration where you write that the declaration of independence came before the revolution. I didn't know that. I always thought that someone made a revolution and then someone afterwards said, well, let's find out how to declare independence. But of course, as being part of writing, we love that, that, Mm. that it came before, but how how do you see the role of ideas and and political philosophy in the practice of, of American democracy today? Well, I do think ideas are key. And in all honesty, I think one of the reasons we're having such a challenge understanding our current political landscape is because there are ideas in the Trump MAGA revolution. There are ideas I disagree with, but there are actually ideas. And so our country is in the middle of a debate. We haven't fully defined or named the terms of the debate, but for that reason, it seems to be just really critical um, for those of us who are responsible for the world of ideas, working in the world of ideas, to name the debate, to try to show people what the stakes are, and then really encourage you know, the hard conversations so that we can make judgments about a forward path. Um, but I think you know the reason our politics is so hot right now is actually because a brand new set of ideas coming out of left field was like deposited in the middle of the political playing ground. Or should I say coming out of right field, actually. Yeah, I'm anyway. surprised. <laughs> so, so you still feel the relevance of Plato and Aristotle and um, the politics of, of friendship? Because at times I love reading uh, Plato. Uh, you know, I love reading Plato and I love thinking about Aristotle. Aristotle is not a pleasure reading. But I very often think, well, 
they're writing and thinking about very small polities that that it's small groups it's it's thinking for small societies and now you're like 350 million people in in america but you still believe those ideas have relevance in this in society um i believe their ideas are helpful i believe we have to also think on our own in all honesty so i don't think the answers exist in those ancient texts for some of the reasons you just pointed to, our circumstances are phenomenally different, right? We are trying to achieve mass scale multicultural democracies, healthy mass scale multicultural democracies. And ultimately the world has not yet achieved this. We're trying to do this, India is trying to do this, in some sense, Brazil is trying to do this. So we have a huge responsibility to answer the question of how this can be achieved. But I do think the ancient texts are helpful and valuable for really underscoring you know, the value to human life of participating in politics, the challenges of how you both get the knowledge that you need in politics to your point before, and also the sort of practical participation of ordinary people. And they ask the right questions. They give us the right puzzles. The puzzles change because of our circumstances. And then we have the job of answering our puzzles for ourselves. Now you've been running for governor of, of Massachusetts and you've been on the campaign trail for quite a while. How did that take in part in, in politics like that and being actually a politician? How, how, how did that influence your own ideas and thinking? Oh, gosh. Um, well, you know, again, it was just a really wonderful experience. So it was very hope bringing um, in the first place. It strengthened my belief in democracy, in all honesty. It didn't reduce my belief um, in democracy at all. And I think it really drove home for me um, some of the challenges of, to exactly your point of, you know, how do we connect the health and vibrancy of local communities to what is possible for us at other jurisdictional levels um, in our political system. So I think the complexities um, of achieving healthy democratic politics in a mass multicultural democracy were you know, driven home for me for sure. Um, but my faith in democracy was strengthened. I have one last question. You stress in your book, Our Declaration, how equality and freedom was thought together originally, which I think is quite obvious actually, because if you want everyone to be free, then you can't have too much inequality. And, and this is also the point of Amatia Sen actually, that freedom always Yes. Has, has, has equality as its, as its premise. But then it seems that for maybe a, a part of the 20th century that was established, that we can have political equality, one person, one vote and, and political participation and enormous economic inequality. So you have these two separate chambers. We have inequality here, but equality here. And now it seems that we're at a moment, not just in America, here as well, but to an extreme extent, in America, where you have the richest people who own Google, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, even Washington Post, you have such an enormous concentration of wealth that it's obviously also damaging to the political equality. And my question here is, do you think within the system and the parties that you have that you can repair that, that you can actually redistribute power and the economy within that? Um, well, I think we have to. I think we have to. I think in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., we need to achieve a full sharing of power and responsibility. And that does require a political economy that supports a broadly egalitarian um, set of economic outcomes and a more egalitarian structure than what we currently have. 
have a book coming out next spring actually called Justice by Means of Democracy that seeks to lay out that political economy. Um, and you know, another volume actually that just came out called The Political Economy of Justice that makes an argument for how we could focus on the productive parts of the economy um, and change some of the underlying dynamics so that we can get back to a place where the economy empowers people broadly across communities um, rather than producing the sort of disempowering structure that we currently have. Well, thank you so much for taking your time. You have another meeting in one minute, I can see from here. <laughs> and thank you for your work. We'll keep following it and be inspired by it. Thank you so much, Runa. And thank you so much for your intellectual leadership as well. It's a real pleasure to talk with you. Det var min samtale med den fantastiske Daniel Allen fra Harvard. I næste uge, der skal jeg tale med den hollandske økonomiske historiker Nicholas Molder. Molder har skrevet den definitive bog om sanktionernes historie. Han beskriver i sin nye bog, som er på 600 sider, der beskriver han, hvordan sanktioner blev skabt under 1. verdenskrig som en måde at undgå at føre krig på, og hvordan sanktioner i perioden mellem 1. og 2. verdenskrig faktisk virkede i den forstand, at de perioder trådte i stedet for krig. Men der også skete det, at sanktionerne faktisk endte med at føre til radikalisering af Italien, Tyskland og Japan, som på hver deres måde gik hen og blev autoritære stater og udløst 2. verdenskrig. Det store spørgsmål til Lykkeles Molder, det er selvfølgelig, det vi gør ved Rusland i dag, svarer det til det, som man gjorde ved Tyskland, Italien og Japan i mellemkrigstiden. Er vi i gang med at presse dem hen et sted, hvor det bliver et autoritært, selvforsynende og radikaliseret militært regime? Det store spørgsmål, det lover jeg, at vi får ikke bare ét, men adskillige kvalificerede svar på i næste uge, når jeg taler med Nicholas Molder. Den her samtale var som alle andre samtaler produceret af denne avis fantastiske ven og kammerat Anne Pilgaard Petersen. Og husk så at tale med fremmede. Det er den måde, I styrker demokratiet og selvbestemmelsen og skaber et nyt samfund på.